Our text this morning is Genesis 34. Please turn there with me in your Bibles. Genesis 34. We will be reading and covering the whole chapter this morning, and so uh, I won't delay in starting us. But first, let us go to the Lord in prayer, asking for his help in understanding this passage. Almighty Father, be with us this morning. Please bless us in learning and being fed from your word. Lord, this is a tough and difficult passage to read, to study, and to acknowledge the reality of sinfulness of fallen man. Lord, we pray that you would humble us even this morning as we look at the faults of others in this chapter and maybe even see faults in ourselves. Lord, we do pray that you would lend us your spirit that we might understand this passage. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 34. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the woman of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dina, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be, upon, be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said uh, to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dina. And they said, they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. 
they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flock and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and all their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? It's fair to say that this is a difficult passage, a tough topic, and I hope you'll understand if where I need to, I exhibit caution and some phrasing. I'll leave it to the parents to explain to their children what certain passages mean or if the children are ready to discuss such matters. But let me summarize where we are in this passage. That Jacob has settled in Shechem, but he was supposed to go to a place called Bethel. He was supposed to go to where he promised God he would return to. He was supposed to go to where God commanded that he return to. In chapter 28, verse 21, Jacob said, God, I will return to this place if only you take me to my uncle Laban and bring me back safely. And then God in chapter 31, verse 3 says, Jacob, it's time to go back. What happens in this passage in summary is that Jacob has failed to live in a holy way, has failed to honor the word of God. And so there are consequences for his family. There is a failure sexually in this passage. And then there is a uh, conversation that follows. They try to find an agreement between the offending party and the offended party. And then a contract or an agreement is reached. And then after that, uh, promises are made, but the promises aren't kept. The contract has failed. And then lastly, we see a family conversation about all that has come to pass. I think it helps set the context for going into these verses by reading from two separate pastors. One is the late Dr. Jim Boyce of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He says this, Genesis 34 gives us a disgraceful report that is difficult to comment or preach on, and that we learn as much as what not to do in our Christian lives as that which we should do. And then R. Kent Hughes, a Reformed Anglican, says, the cost of Jacob's turpitude is immense, as chapter 34 records. Rape, degeneration, treachery, and genocide. Yet in all of this, a fierce grace is at work. In Shechem, In the event we are about to consider, God allows Jacob to experience the appalling weight of his sinfulness so that he will return to God's call. Divine grace will triumph despite human sin. Fierce, fiery grace. In summary, these two quotes tell us that our lesson today is from the negative. Here is what not to do, therefore do this. Don't do what's exampled, do what's not exampled. My main focus that I want you to take away this morning from the passage is a summary of what we learn from the negative, and it's this. God's people must strive for holiness. Now, I want you to hear me when I say that if I tell you to strive for holiness, you must have the Spirit to do that. You must have the grace of God. You must be in Christ to strive for holiness. You cannot earn salvation by working it. You must be given the gift of faith in Christ. But once you are God's people, once you are His, once you are His child, the command in Scripture is clear that we must live a holy life. We will fail, but we must live a holy life. And when I say that God's people must strive for holiness, I want you to see that we can do this in three ways, or when we should do this in three ways. God's people must strive for holiness when they fail. 
when you fail and when I fail, we must return to holiness. We must strive for holiness. Second, I want you to see that we must strive for holiness when others fail. We see that Hamor and Shechem fail, unbelievers. We see that Simeon and Levi fail, believers. I want you to see that we must strive for holiness even when others fail. And lastly, we must strive for holiness by returning to obedience when you stray. When you stray and when I stray, there is a work still to be done to repent and to return to God in obedience, to know his word and to obey it. So let's look at the first part of our lesson this morning. We must strive for holiness when we fail. We're going to look at the example of Jacob. We're going to look at his particular failures in this passage, and they are many. But I want you to know that as we look at his own failures, we should consider that this passage tells us the risk of our own failures, the sins that we could fall into, the ways that we could fall short of the standard of the Word of God. It's very humbling to see his failures as a father, knowing that I could and will at times fail as a father. It's humbling to see his failure as a leader, knowing that I, knowing that you could fail as leaders in your homes and leaders of your children and leaders in schools and places of employment. So first, see that Jacob settled in Shechem. And I'd summarize this action by saying this, partial obedience in this case is disobedience. Let me illustrate it for you like this. Parents, when you tell your children, you, you look at one of them, you say, hey, take out the trash. Have you ever seen this happen? They tie the bag at the top, and they take the bag out, and they carry it most of the way to the dumpster, most of the way to that trash bin in your garage or outside, and somehow it just it stops a little short, and it, you see the trash bag only makes it as far as the hallway, or only as far as the outside of the trash can, but it doesn't quite get in the trash can. And maybe they don't go back and put a new trash bag in the trash can. Is that full obedience? No, that's stopping short of what is clearly expected. And parents, let me ask you this follow-up question. If you don't address that, What's going to happen the next time that you ask your kids to take out the trash? The trash bag is probably only going to make it as far as the hallway or as far as just outside the dumpster. And so correction, discipline, even if it's just a verbal mention, hey, you didn't do it all the way. You need to go all the way. Obey my words, says a father to their child. That is what happens here. And so Jacob gets disobedient. He gets disciplined from God. He gets corrected from God. And the cost is immense. See further that Jacob not only falls short of God's standard, but in the way that he does it, he surrounds his family by the ungodly. He makes a decision for his convenience and to fulfill his desires that stop short of what God calls him to, and that leaves his family in a community of unbelievers, surrounded by unholiness, in the proximity of temptation, day in and day out. The people that Jacob's family, that his whole empire, as you will, uh, that they have to trade with, that they have to interact with, that they have to barter with, not believers, not the ones who worship the one true God. Have you ever heard the phrase, you are the company you keep, or just the phrase, the company you keep? The implication is that those that you spend regular time with, those that you really enjoy being around, their values are a reflection of your values at some level. And you see that as Jacob settles closer to the sinful city of Shechem, and not in the city of promise, not in the city of the vow that Jacob made, you see that Jacob has to pay a cost for being so close. His daughter pays a cost. His sons pay a cost. Jacob pays a cost. And the application is this. When you consider taking a new job, when you consider moving, when you consider transferring your child from one school to another, do you consider whether there's a body of believers, a good church, 
to attend, to be in fellowship with? Do you consider what types of friends your kids are going to make as they are in one school versus another? Do you consider what types of neighbors you are going to have as you purchase a house in one place versus another? The Bible calls us to think about these things. And as we seek the will of God, even in these types of decisions, we have to see that there is a holier way of going about it and a less holy way, one that seeks to fulfill our own desires and one that seeks to fulfill the desires that God has for us. Second, seeing that Jacob failed in settling short of God's standard for him, he fails as a protector of his family and especially his daughter. In verse 2, you'll see that it says that Dina was seized and humiliated. I want to stray on the side of caution in illustrating this, but to understand the type of humiliation that Dina faced as, um, as she was taken by Shechem, I want you just briefly to imagine that you see a young woman coming out of a men's locker room. Know that she would be talked about. Know that she would be gossiped about. Know that there would be speculation about why she was in there. Know that she would carry shame and humiliation just for that one circumstance. Now multiply a hundredfold because she is a covenant child, a, a daughter of the people of God. And there are standards for her and the way that she lives and who she interacts with and who she would even marry one day. And for her to have gone through this traumatic event with an unbeliever is twice the offense that it would be otherwise. And where Jacob fails in this is he failed to set safe boundaries, wise boundaries. Parents, one example would be that as your children are getting ready to drive or beginning to drive, you might tell them, don't text and drive. Now kids, hopefully your parents are not texting while they drive and saying, this is how you're safe on the road. And as your parents tell you, don't text and drive, the example there is that they're saying, don't do it because it's safe for you. Don't do it because it's for your good. Don't do it because one day you may have kids and you need to be able to drive safely with them in the car. It's not just for today, but it's for the whole of your life, these lessons, these safety measures. But Jacob failed to either communicate that or to enforce what was wise for Dina. You see, it says in verse 1, she went out to see the women of the land. It makes me think of Ruth too. Ruth, in chapter 2, she follows her mother-in-law back to her mother-in-law's hometown. They're both widows, and they need food. So Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Hey, mother-in-law, I'm going to go back and get food for us. We need to eat. Her mother-in-law says, Sounds good. Go get us some food. Ruth goes out to the field. It's in harvest season. She wants to get some barley. She wants to get some wheat so they can make uh, cakes, so they can make food. And she ends up in the field of a man named Boaz, a good-looking fellow, right? And she, she looks at him, and he talks to her and says, Hey, I see you working in this field. Stay in my field. Don't go to other fields. Why? Because you'll be safe with my employees. You'll be safe, especially around my young women. Boaz says, stay near the young women that are in my employment in my fields, and you can come back here so I'll know you're safe and so you can know you're, you're safe. What does Ruth do? Ruth goes back to her mother-in-law. The whole day's event transpiring. She says, hey, I've got food for today, and I've got employment for tomorrow, and I got this permission from this really nice-looking guy that I can work in his field. And he said, guess what, Naomi? Guess what, mother-in-law? I can work near his young men. See, Ruth twists it. She wants to be near the other guys in the field. And Naomi corrects her, and she says, hey, Nate, hey, Ruth, it would be good for you to stay near his young women. Naomi corrects Ruth in her thinking so that she's safe. She actually says, lest you be assaulted in another field. See, even in the book of Ruth, they exhibit wisdom and caution, knowing that evil can befall someone if they're by themselves. 
It's an instruction for us to put boundaries in place for our children, for uh, our wives and for our daughters to exist them, exhibit prudence when they go shopping, to think about how dark is it? Am I by myself? Do I have people around me? Who can I take with me to be safe? You see, Jacob had so many sons. Could he not have put a rule in place that said, hey, Dina, if you go out, take at least one of your many brothers with you. Another place that we could learn about this same type of context is in 2 Samuel 13 is the story of Tamar refusing the illicit advances of her half-brother. I won't explore it, but make note that 2 Samuel 13 is a place you could learn more about this passage. Next, see Jacob fails to respond to Hamor, the father of Shechem, as he should. You see, Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, tell us, be angry and do not sin. But we don't see a a reasonable response from Jacob at all. He finds out that his daughter has been taken advantage of. No response, no protection, no indignation, no holy anger. He waits for his sons to come back, and there may have been some prudence in that, that he didn't overreact. But still, no reaction at all, keeping his peace entirely? It's hard to imagine. But as we look here, you'll see, if you were to go further in Genesis, that when Jacob finds out that he thinks his son Joseph has been torn apart by a beast when he's really been sold into slavery, Jacob is beside himself. He goes into mourning. He tears his clothes. Why doesn't he mourn that way for Dina? Why didn't he care for her as he should have? Because he should have. He very much should have. What about when he thinks he's going to lose Benjamin to the ruler of Pharaoh that he doesn't know is his son Joseph? Again, he's beside himself. He says, will I lose my other child, the daughter of Rachel? His response to Hamor is subpar at best. It says that the reason that he didn't speak out against, if you look at the last passage, when Jacob is speaking to his sons, he say, you've made me stink to the inhabitants of the land. Jacob is more concerned with how he looks and what kind of business he can do with his neighbors than he is with his responsibility of caring for his family. Let me illustrate it like this. Let's say that you are trying to do a business deal and you are trying to sell something to another person. And that person happens to also be the coach of one of your children's in their sport. And that coach is being too harsh, too difficult, interacting with the kids on the team in a way that they shouldn't. That your child is paying the price. Should you say something? Yes, you should. But would you hold your tongue so that you could close that business deal? See, that's what Jacob did here. He has an obligation, a God-given responsibility to protect his family, to minister and testify to his neighbors and say, my God would not have this happen. And he requires a response that matches his holiness and his equity. Jacob falls short. And the application here is that While you do need to work to provide for your families, you do need food on the table, you do need money in the bank account, you do need things to care for your children. But at the end of the day, your family doesn't need a bigger flat screen. They need a parent in the home, especially a father in the home, who ministers the gospel to his wife, who ministers the gospel to his children, who sets an example for them and can be seen by them. And that is a very heavy task because we still have sin within us. And any leader of their family knows that they fall short of this every single day. So this isn't a call to be perfect. It's to know that when you fall short, Christ has fulfilled the standard of perfection for you. But you also have the spirit that you can live a holy life. It's both and. Strive for holiness. 
We see where Jacob didn't, and we see what it cost. Lastly, see that Jacob fails to set an example for his sons. The phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And you see, at the end of everything that Jacob's sons did, they went too far. You see, if someone takes $5 from you, you don't get to take 1000 back from them. There may be some penalty. They may owe you $5 plus an extra dollar back so that they don't uh, commit the same crime again. But the punishment didn't fit the crime here. His sons essentially committed genocide on a whole town for one offense, an awful offense, one that required a response. But the magnitude of the response didn't match the crime. And you see, when Jacob tries to correct his sons because he hasn't been living a holy life, hasn't been a godly example to his children, he hasn't taken the plank out of his own eye. That's Matthew 7. Jesus says, take the plank out of your own eye so you can remove the speck of dust from the one that you're trying to help. You see, uh, Jacob didn't set himself up to be able to rebuke and correct his sons. So when we look here, the idea is that you can silence others who accuse you, you can silence others who fail to live to a holy standard by being above accusation, by living to a high and godly standard. First Peter 2 says this, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us, when he brings us to account. First Peter 3 essentially says, Christ the righteous suffered for the unrighteous to make them righteous. Therefore, do not repay evil for evil, but bless those who persecute you. We think about the way that his children responded, partially because of his example. Jacob lied, so his children lie. Jacob stole, so his children stole. As we look at the next major application here, I want you to see that we must strive for holiness when others fail. First, let's look at two unbelievers. They, by definition, are going to fail the standard of God, but we'll see a particular offense that they cause. You see that Shechem, the son of Hamor, seizes, verse 2, Dina. When it says that he seizes her, I want, if you have a Reformation study Bible, you may have a footnote, and it says that really good scholars debate what it means that he seized. So the degree of the offense is not 100% clear. It's pretty clear, but it's not 100% clear. I would encourage you to talk to your elders about what degree of this offense it was. But I want you to know that in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 6, the same word for seize is used. When Eve takes the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says that she seized it, the same way that this verse does. And in Genesis 6, when it says the sons of God took wives for themselves, it says they took them. The way that this word seize is used in these two moments, it talks about your passions overriding you your lust, your desire, the thing that you desire for yourself, even against the will of God, it says that they seized. And the idea here is that Shechem clearly did something he shouldn't have. He took something that didn't belong to him, and there will be consequences for that seizing. Further, in verse 4, he says, hey, Dad, go get that girl for my wife. Everything about this passage shows that Shechem does not understand the dignity of women that is inherent and God-given. He doesn't understand that women are made in the image of God, co-heirs with men in the glory of God as far as they receive it in Christ. I just want to give you a hermeneutic caution. Hermeneutic means the method that we use to study the Bible. And good Bible students don't force answers where the Bible doesn't provide them. And where the Bible provides some clarity, we have some clarity. And where the Bible provides perfect clarity, we have perfect clarity. And I would ask you to consider, 
how much clarity the Bible gives about what offense has happened here, and also how much, Bible to, how much clarity the Bible gives about what type of response is justified in this instance. But remember, they're unbelievers. They cannot please God. There is no spirit within them to lead them in obedience after the fall. So we're not shocked by their sin. We're shocked by the degree of their sin. It shouldn't be this way. We know that, but it is. Look at verse 20 and 24. We see that after Shechem and Hamor go to Jacob and his brothers and they try and cut a deal, that they take that deal to the leaders of the city and they lie and deceive for their own benefit. They, they don't even mention the fact to their city leaders that Dina is going to become the wife of Shechem as this deal goes through. They go to their city leaders and they say, hey, you're going to make a ton of money. You're going to have a ton of wealth. These people have a lot of property that we can take for ourselves if we only marry into their family and allow them to be beside us. You see, Shechem and Hamor lie to their neighbors. They lie to their people. They deceive them. Straight up lie. We see it in other places in this passage as well. But notice, most importantly, they fail to repent for their sinfulness. They fail to repent. Uh, you never see Shechem say, I shouldn't have done what I did. You never see Hamor apologize for his son's action. Proverbs 6, verse 34 tells us that the fury of a husband against a man who sleeps with his wife will not be quenched, will not be satisfied. It says that when certain types of offenses happen, you cannot expect to appease someone with money or with gifts that they are going to want revenge. And that's just talking about what we can expect from how human responds, not whether it's godly or not. But woe to the city whose well-being is led by the passions of a young man, by a young person. There is a reason that the leaders of our country, the leaders of our churches, are older, wiser, experienced, because they know how to navigate complex issues and seek the good of the people that they represent. But it seems here that the desires of Shechem are leading his people. Next, I want to look briefly at Simeon and Levi's failures. Something you should know is that when it says that Simeon and Levi were Dina's brothers, I want you to know that these were all Leah's children. If I ask you, who did Jacob love more, Rachel or Leah? Jacob played favorites, and he loved Rachel more, and he loved Rachel's sons and children more. And so Leah and Simeon and Levi pay the price, and it causes strife in the household. Verses 13 through 17. The two brothers speak in place of Jacob, and they say, hey, if you go circumcise all the men in your city, we will give our sister to you as your bride. But they lie. They had no intention to fulfill this. The worst part about this, aside from the genocide, aside from the murder, aside from the breaking of the commandments, is that they abuse a covenant sign. God gave the sign of circumcision to point to his grace, to point to him calling a people to himself, to point to his promise of making nations out of sinners and reclaiming the lost, that they could be reconciled to him and that he would dwell with them and that he would be their God and they would be his people. And they take the sign that pointed to all of that grace and all of that mercy and they used it for revenge and they used it for murder. How awful it is when we don't apply and receive and consider the sacraments with all of the holiness and all the reverence that God has built into them. What a lesson for us as we are about to take the Lord's Supper in just a little bit, that we should consider how holy and everything that it points to what the Lord's Supper represents, the grace that's conveyed in it. Yet they abuse this very gift. In verses 25 and 29, they seek revenge and not justice. Psalm 135 verse 14 says, God will vindicate his people Yet they sought their payback on their own terms. 1 Peter 2, verse 
verse 23, it says, Christ did not retaliate, but entrusted himself to God who judges justly. It's difficult to be afflicted and not pay back evil for evil. But Paul, in Romans 12, talking about the marks of a true Christian, starting in verse 17, he says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And all of you are asking in your mind, but doesn't this evil require response? Yes, but with wisdom. Yes, but when Jacob responded to Hamor, he should have said, I belong to the one true God, and the way that I will respond will be conducted in a way that accords to his holiness, his justice, his wisdom, and his word. You don't see Simeon and Levi pray. You don't see them seek the counsel of their elders. You just see them respond. Let that be a lesson to us that we should consider before we respond even to evil. And then in verse 30, Jacob rebukes his sons and he says, you've put our family in a terrible position. You're going to cost us money, but we may even be destroyed. You see, Simeon and Levi, they don't think like leaders. They think selfishly. They think about getting payback. Jacob says, I'm responsible for all these people. Do you know what kind of position you've put us in? So children, when your parents say we need to do something and it's hard to swallow, know that your parents are making decisions for your whole family and not just for themselves and not just for one child, not just for one family member, but for the whole of the good of your family as it honors God. And you'll see that there's a cost to Shechem and Hamor's failure. The whole city, the whole men are wiped out. You'll see that there's a cost to Simeon and Levi. You could say that they're cursed in Genesis 49. See, anyone standing near Shechem and Hamor, it's like a grenade that goes off. And anyone standing within distance of them pays the price. When you look at Simeon and Levi, by God's grace, their family is taken out of this situation ultimately. But if you were to go to Genesis 49, verses 5 to 7, this is Jacob reading his will, essentially, before he dies. He's blessing his sons and cursing some of them in the sense of whether they've lived holy lives and been an example and whether they'll, they've been faithful in what God has called them. Jacob says this regarding Simeon and Levi, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That is not a blessing. Jacob's on his dead deathbed, and he has not forgotten this incident or the character of his sons. You see, it's often in the hardest seasons that when we see that when we are in the greatest distress, when we are in the hardest seasons, when we are being most afflicted, when the greatest wrongs occur, we see least clearly. And we need the counsel of godly men and women to surround us and point us back to the Scriptures. We need to be in the Scriptures before awful events happen before hard seasons come so that we can draw upon the scriptures and live them out in difficult seasons. It's one of the greatest arguments, not the, not the greatest, but one of the greatest arguments for marrying a godly spouse. They might do that very thing in difficult seasons. Our last point, 
We need to strive for holiness by returning to obedience when, and not if, but when you stray and when I stray. See, 2 Timothy 2 says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And the idea is that if you are in the promises of God and you belong to him and you fail, God is not done with you. We see that God is not done with Jacob. I cannot wait for Genesis 35 because we see God fulfill all that he promised to Jacob. We see God continue to bless Jacob despite Jacob's failure. We see God say, you did wrong, but you can be forgiven and you can be restored and I will fulfill my promises even if you fail to obey me. Not that Jacob shouldn't have obeyed him, but that his sin overcame him and yet God was still faithful. What an assurance, what a hope, what a blessing that when we fail, when we fail our families, when we fail ourselves, especially when we fail God and his holy standard, that he is faithful. That in Christ we belong to him. And he says, because of what Christ has accomplished and you being in Christ covered by his blood, I will not judge your sin against you. You will not pay the wrath for that. I promise that, says God. Christ has already paid that. So we have hope and we have peace with God. I also want you to see that God's discipline is his love to his children. It's interesting, in youth on Wednesdays, we're going through Zechariah, chapters 1 and 2. The Jews have been sent into exile, and God says, you'll be there for 70 years because you have failed my covenant. You have failed to obey my word and my holy standard. But what does God do after 70 years? He brings them back. He restores them. He puts them back into the city of David. He helps them to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the temple. You see what happens is God says, your discipline was light. It was for a season. It was for a time. Psalm 119, verse 71 says, It was good that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Affliction is a teacher, especially when it's allowed by God for our good as we belong to him. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, God's anger is for a moment, but his favor for a lifetime. How grateful we should be that God disciplines us when we stray, as he puts us back on track and as he prepares us for glory and prepares us for worshiping and praising and enjoying him forever and ever in Christ. One last point. We see that the sons of God really don't recognize God's goodness. They don't trust in him. They, su- they settle short of God's standard. Oftentimes when we're afflicted, we doubt God's goodness. Oftentimes this is caused by forgetting God's primary proof that he loves us just the fact that he gave his very son for us. But the remedy is just the same. We forget that God gave Christ for us, that he died for us, and he paid our, his debt. He paid our debt. But when we remember Christ, when we consider him, we consider Christ who endured hostility from sinners, who endured death from sinners, we're put back on that track of remembering, glorifying, obeying, being led by the Spirit. So if you have strayed, if you are off the track of holiness, or if you are living out of accord with Scriptures, Remember that Christ died for you. Remember what's required of you now that you belong to God in Christ. I'll close by saying this, that we should admit today that the same sin that lives in the characters of this story, that same sin lives in us. For a season, the Spirit belongs in you. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And as it dwells in our hearts, the same as it dwells in these characters, we pray the Lord's favor and grace We pray that his grace will keep us from terrible unholiness. We pray that it will keep us from travesty in our own lives. And we pray God's favor to make us strive, to help us, to lead us for holiness by the strength of his hand in Christ. As I close this morning, I want to read a prayer from the Valley of Vision. This is a collection of prayers from the saints of a prior example-setting generation. 
This prayer is called shortcoming, so please bow with me and I'll read it to you. It's in the first person. Apply it to your own hearts corporately. O living God, I bless thee that I see the worst of my heart as well as the best of it, that I can sorrow for those sins that carry me from you, that it is thy deep and dear mercy to threaten punishment so that I may return, pray, and live. My sin is to look upon my faults and be discouraged, or to look on my good and be puffed up. I fall short of the glory every day by spending hours unprofitably, by thinking that the things I do are good when they are not done to your ends, nor spring from the rules of your word. My sin is to fear what will never be. I forget to submit to your will and fail to be quiet there. But Scripture teaches me that you will achieve what you reveal, and you are steadfast in your purposes on my behalf. And this quite quietens my soul and makes me love you. Keep me always in the understanding that saints mourn more for sin than other men. For when they see how great is your wrath against sin and how Christ's death alone pacifies that wrath, that makes them mourn the more. Help me to see that although I am in the wilderness, it is not all briars and barrenness. I have bread from heaven, streams from the rock, light by day, fire by night, thy dwelling place and your mercy seat. I am sometimes discouraged by the way, but though winding and trying, it is safe and short. Death dismays me, but my high priest stands in its waters and will open me a passage, and beyond it is a better country. While I live, let my life be exemplary. When I die, may my end be peace. In Christ's name, amen.